If it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, that means it's time for Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and our WDIY app. And we start off with Perspectives with John Pierce. My guest this evening is Reverend Sue Pizer Yoder, who has authored a book, co-authored a book. Is that the better way to say it, Sue? There are eight of us. Eight of you in on this book. Wait until you hear about this book. This is really interesting. So Reverend Sue Pizer Yoder is a native of Butler, PA. She received her degrees from Westminster College, Pittsburgh Seminary, and Louisville Seminary. Did you uh, learn how to pronounce Louisville correctly while you were there? (laughs) Oh, they teach you. (laughs) (laughs) They teach you. (laughs) Absolutely. Her doctorate was in preaching to the whole household of God. She has been a pastor for 39 years, served three Presbyterian churches right here in the Lehigh Valley, Allentown and Bethlehem, and then also in Liberty Corner, New Jersey. In 2005... Sue founded the Barn Faith Community, and that was in Allentown. It met at the... It met in several places. It met in a fire hall, it met in a community center. It met pretty long in Swain School. I remember Swain School mm-hmm. as the place, right. And that was innovative new church development. She's currently planting a 1001 new worshiping community through the Presbyterian Church called Blank Slate and is focused on conversations with nuns, no religious affiliation, and duns, those who are done with institutional religion as typically expressed in the U.S. Reverend Sue Yoder and a group of colleagues have written a book reflecting this work and facilitating conversation between those inside and outside the church. That was The book was released in July 2023. The book's title, Hear Us Out. Sue Pizer Yoder loves teaching, spending time with her family, singing, cooking, traveling, and hiking. Wow, she is the Renaissance woman. Sue, welcome to our microphones. Delightful to be here. Yeah, it's always fun to be with Sue. She has so many ideas bubbling around all the time. Is that right? Is that fair to say? Probably. (laughs) So, Sue... Uh, The book is called Hear Us Out. It's a 200-page book, and in here you have uh, quite an extensive bibliography. So this is just not anecdotal things. This is you went and interviewed people, and then you divided the, the book into six chapters. Tell us a little bit about that whole experience. Which people were you looking for? Sure. I got a grant through a Louisville Institute, and the plan was that we would first begin by really reading, trying to come to understand emerging generations and how they were making meaning. So we read over 75 books, thus the extensive uh, bibliography. We listened to countless podcasts. We passed around hundreds of articles between those of us who were doing the research. And then when 
we completed that. We made a list of the things that all of the literature agreed on about millennials, about Generation Z, about the unchurched, about those who might be agnostic or atheist on the outside looking in. And then we made this decision that we didn't want to just believe the literature so much of it was by survey or whatever. We really wanted to talk with the people themselves. Uh, we wanted to do ethnographic research, it's called, where you really, and most people don't do it because it's very time consuming because you're meeting people one on one. Yes. And so we interviewed 225 people. As a result of the pandemic, they went from personal interviews face to face to online. But that actually proved constructive for us because then we had somebody transcribe all 225 and we were able to really look at it as a in its bulk not just in specific but you know what were in common what words were used the most you know all kinds of wonderful things once they were transcribed and we discovered that some of what we had researched was very accurate and some of what we researched the folks that we interviewed we wouldn't we wouldn't say that it was actually Accurate. T- typical. Um, yeah, not typical. Uh, for instance, people would, would often say that millennials were lazy. Um, we would say they are uninspired, and we would say there's a big difference between those two. For instance, mm-hmm. the literature would say that most millennials are narcissistic. Our experience was that many, many of the people that we interviewed were incredibly giving, incredibly kind, and incredibly generous people, not narcissistic at all. So this was the reason for the interviews against the the book knowledge and, you know, some of that research that was done. And we just loved doing it. We crafted some questions that were consistently asked to all 225 people. The book is a reflection of those six questions. We crafted five of them. After three or four interviews, each person asked me the same thing. Why aren't you asking me why I'm a nun or done? You know, that's what I came prepared to tell you. And we said, well, we didn't want to ask an overtly religious question like that that was leading. But we added a question. Tell us about your, you know, faith journey that you grew up in and if it has changed and how. And we also told every interviewee that that was not our question, that that was something that they wanted to tell us. And they opened up very much about that. Yes, I was going to say you're a you're a pastor, and yet you have emphasized in the book that you did not come at your partners. You call them conversation partners mm-hmm. instead of subjects. Mm-hmm. So it makes it sound like a true conversation, which between, is what we wanted it to be. Yes, and not pushing toward faith and what are you doing about it to these days, and why aren't you going to church? Not at all. As a matter of fact, we we intentionally avoided religious language, and we intentionally avoided anything that would make anyone feel guilty. We weren't there to judge. We were there to listen, and the way we crafted the questions was very intentional in the sense that we really wanted them to feel very safe to open up. One young man who's an atheist said to me at one point, if the kinds of questions you're asking and the kinds of listening that you are doing had occurred when I was taken to church as a child, I may still be there. So I think many of our respondents were very appreciative of the questions, the way we ask them, and their capacity to have free reins to give us uh, input without interruption. 
let, let's get into this idea of who are the millennials, Gen Z, and what is unique about these generations? Sure. Millennials are those who are born between 80 and 95. They're currently ages 28 to 43. They're called millennials because they came of age. We consider those adolescent years kind of coming of age when you are formed as a generation. And they came of age at the turn of the millennia. Gen Z, or often called iGen because they're the first generation to not know life without an iPhone, (laughs) were born between 96 and 2012. They're currently 28 and under. These two generations were generations both under 40 that have shown statistically that they are unlike their predecessors for many generations ahead of them, returned to church when they got married and had children. These generations are not. They are choosing not to return to church. Many of them have never been introduced to church or synagogue or mosque. Uh, Many of them have had non-practicing parents. And so they have a very high percentage of people who are what we call nuns and duns. Either they have no religious affiliation or they are done with institutional expressions of religion. So it does not, however, mean, as we discovered, that they are not spiritual, that they don't have leanings towards wanting to explore that which is sort of beyond themselves. So they often might practice meditation, or they might be into contemplation. They might practice yoga. Many of them, what we discovered, have what we call a belief system that's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, they want to do good. Therapeutic, they want to feel good. Deism, they kind of put together a faith by little bits of this and that. They might do yoga here. They might have a Buddhist roommate in college. They might have grown up Christian. They might have a friend, a very good friend that's Jewish. And so they take a little bit of all of these things and kind of craft or create what it is they believe out of that. So most of the folks that we interviewed, while they did not profess to a particular faith, many of them held to moralistic therapeutic deism. I never heard that term before. Is that one that you all created? No, that was created in uh, Princeton in some studies that were done a few years ago. Oh. So let's, uh, let me ask the question, why did you choose to do this research in the first place? Mm. I think probably one of my greatest motivations, I've always been curious, even when I went to seminary, I went to seminary because not because I wanted to be a pastor for those inside the church. I always had a passion for those outside the church. That was always my passion, trying to understand how they think. And as I pastored for many years in some of the really fine, growing churches when others were diminishing, the churches that I was serving in were adding buildings and (laughs) growing where others were uh, shrinking. So I felt like I was really given like the best of that world, and I had the privilege of serving with some amazingly gifted humans. But after doing that for a number of years, I went back for my doctorate. And as I was studying and researching for my doctorate, the the research was pretty clear that two-thirds of North Americans, particularly in the United States, 
two-thirds were not practicing their faith. They might believe but not practice. And that was back in the late 90s. And I was like, hmm, that is huge. Why aren't we paying closer attention to this, um, those of us who are in the church, in the synagogue, in the mosque? So I was reflecting on this. I was journaling about this, and I heard this very strong sense of voice say, well, do something about it. If it's bothering you, do something about it. And so I began really researching, studying, trying to understand how emerging generations were making meaning. Because certainly generations before them were making their meaning in community, in, in their places of worship. That's often where they hatch-matched and dispatched, right? That's where they <laughs> married. That's where they were buried. And in fact, that was not the case anymore. So I wanted to understand why and how new generations were making meaning. I wanted to understand my own children, my own adult children, and why their expressions who had been brought up in the church had changed. And so it really led me down this path to really try to grapple with what is going on, what is changing, and found out a lot of things along the way. Right. Now, I'm assuming that since you're a pastor, your children were brought up going to worship services every Sunday. Mm Mm-hmm. And then now that they're adults, they have chosen not to go to worship services. That is so typical. I just hear it time and time again. Absolutely. We've got, the interesting thing is we have nuns, we have duns, we also have a new category we're calling ums. And it's happened as a result of the pandemic. I'm not sure if I'm going back. Um, that was important, but maybe I, <laughs> I was more invested in the community of people than I was the belief structure. So now we have nuns, duns, and ums, people who are, who are really mm, not quite sure whether they're going to return or if they're going to stay just Zooming or what they're going to do. So we might even add a category now. Interesting. And the ums. Hmm. My guest this evening on Perspectives is Reverend Sue Pizer Yoder. Our engineer is James Zebrot. James, doing a fine job on the board for us. This is my first time with James. It's time for us to take a break now, so listeners, hang in there. We'll be back in just a moment. WDIY News engages the Lehigh Valley with accurate, unbiased reporting from many sources and volunteer real voices. Listen to WDIY News during Morning Edition, Fresh Air, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition, every day here on 88.1 FM, streaming on WDIY.org and the WDIY phone app. WDIY. Many choices, real voices. We're talking this evening with Reverend Sue Pizer Yoder about the book Hear Us Out, which was published in June 2023. And it's all about, well, let's be frank about it, how fewer people are going to worship services these days. And we see churches closing. We see for sale signs on churches that had been there for how many years? So your curiosity, Sue, is with why this is happening and what what are young people thinking? And you say that uh, every once in a while there's a a sort of a pause. Yeah, some of our sociologists have looked and said about every 500 years, it's time for a rummage sale, interestingly, (laughs) is what Phyllis Tickle calls it. 
you know, if you go back to, uh, let's talk about Christendom's roots, if you think of the sort of the beginning when Christ walked the earth, and then about 500 years later, 476, you had the fall of Rome. Right. And then about 500 years later in 1054, you had the great schism between the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches. And then about 500 years later in 1517, you had the Reformation. And of course, the Reformation was what prompted, again, a huge period of change because of the advent of the printing press. So, right, right, Luther's 95 theses don't end up on just the door of Wittenberg for the priests to talk about, but they get widely disseminated. It becomes a communal conversation instead of a conversation just among the brotherhood. And then, of course, 500 years later, you look to the uh, turn of the millennial, And we have this little thing called technology. And technology has shifted our perspective from a parochial perspective to uh, certainly a global perspective. You know, when you think back, many of us think back to our childhoods that are, let's say, above 50, above 60. And your childhood was often very similar. Neighborhoods looked the same. The people in the neighborhood acted pretty much the same. They had names the same. They ate the same foods. They had the same kinds of customs. I mean, I grew up in a high school with a thousand kids in my graduating class. There were two African-Americans. There was two Jews. And we knew who was Roman Catholic and who was Protestant in that thousand kids. Now, it would look very different. It would be very different. Family structures, very, very different, right? From mom, dad, 2.3 kids and the dog, you know, <laughs> to uh, a, a family that is often step families. It can be two parents of the same gender. It can be families that are sharing kids between, you know, different families. Adoption, uh, you know, just this, it's limitless, the, the kinds of family structures that we have. Barney started declaring this back several years ago, a family is love. That's a family. You know, he didn't say, you know, the big purple dinosaur that many Gen Xers grew up with. He certainly redefined family. A family is love. That makes me think of of our old buddy, Fred Rogers. Absolutely. Yeah. Went to my seminary, had a course with him. Did you? Children and families in times of stress. You know, he was trying to help broaden some definitions that were more inclusive and certainly did that. Times have changed, and all of a sudden, because of the advent of technology, we don't just have this parochial view, but, you know, we get instant news. We know what's happening in the world all the time in the flash of an instant. We know that in the past, terrible things happened, but we didn't have visions of them every second, you know, all the time. The news, this technology has so many pluses. It also has some negatives. It has some minuses. It's, It's certainly now where people used to agree to disagree. Now we're much more divided. You know, news has a way of you click on it, it sends you more like it. So pretty soon you think everybody thinks like you, acts like you, talks like when in reality, it's not the case. You know, you used to, if you were a person that was pretty different, you just thought you were pretty different. Now you can go online and find 500 other people who are different just like you, and all of a sudden you don't feel so different, right? So there's advantages and disadvantages. Yes. Mm -hmm. So about every 500 years, there's some 
upheaval we could Mm -hmm. major shift major shift major shift and we and and it doesn't resolve itself overnight and and we're in one right we're in one right now in faith communities faith communities in my opinion have not caught up we've lived in denial for a long time this has been coming this has shifted we stayed teaching kids stories with flannel boards for goodness sakes when they're living in a world that is just flipping constantly all the time in sound bites and so, you know, th- this world is, is educating us around many, many things that many of us grew up never knowing. Um, we were sheltered. We did not know some of the, the battles that many people had to fight. And now we're learning of them because of this World Wide Web, because we're learning about a lot of things that we were kept from knowing. Right. How is the religious landscape changing? Now, we know fewer people are tending to go to Mm -hmm. weekly services. Mm -hmm. Are there other things that are happening? I mean, I'm thinking of why people are not as drawn to church services as they used to be. Sure. Let's say that the population in churches is both shrinking and wrinkling, right? (laughs) (laughs) They're getting smaller and more gray-headed. I think the reality is that the church, the synagogue, the mosque, at least the things that our friends told us, it no longer feels relevant in many ways to many. It feels like it's an institution that has seen its time. It feels like it's out of touch with the world in which many of our young adults are experiencing day to day. Let me just give you like a brief illustration So in many churches, for instance, a pastor gets up and preaches anywhere from 20 minutes to, you know, an hour. Where else does that happen? Our world's in sound bites. Even in colleges, it's being taught in sound bites. Everything's in sound bites. Television's in sound bites. And here, we're preaching at people (laughs) for 20 minutes to an hour, Mm -hmm. when in reality, what we discovered was these emerging generations want to be a part of the conversation They don't want to be preached at, lectured to. They want to be integral to what is being said. They want to banter back and forth. They want to deconstruct things and then help to reconstruct them in a way that makes sense. So they want that learning to be dialogical, which is very new for the church. They want leadership not to be top-down. They want it to be collaborative, which is hard for the church. So many of the things that are kind of innate to the way the church or the synagogue or the mosque runs, they want them to be different. Dogma being like the center piece. They're saying, no, 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 no. We don't even believe in all that dogma. Just have conversations with us about what you believe and let us give you our perspective. Let us help understand. And they want people to be accountable for some of the mistakes they've made. You know, we had we did a lot of horrific things to indigenous people, for instance. Look at slavery. Look at our part in helping Hitler. <laughs> what in, he did. The Inquisition. Yeah, I mean, look at the Great Crusade. They're not saying we're holding you accountable for all of these things personally. They're saying, let's talk about these things. What enabled them to happen so that we can shift and not let them happen again? What have we learned from them? So, yeah, there's a lot of shift goals. Well, uh, Sue, it occurs to me that you and millions of other pastors go to seminary, typically for three years, 
Minimally, yeah. And then you know much more about, well, is it only about dogma? Or yeah. is it about faith in general that you you become our leaders? Is there not a place anymore for leadership like that? Oh, I think there's definitely a place for leadership. It's the role of leadership. How do we lead? It's one thing when you lead as the authority. It's another thing when you lead as a fellow journeyer. In other words, I may have more education in terms of knowledge of the Bible or how to deal with ethics or how to look at church history, all those kinds of things. And that may even be my expertise, but that is different than coming to the table, not as the one and only expert, (laughs) the one who you don't dare argue with or disagree with, versus one person at the table who brings that expertise, but who is very open to the dialogue and is excited to have that dialogue. That's why we tell our story in the book through stories, because we want you to hear their stories. We want the stories to tell their story. You know, we didn't present it as fact. We presented it as their stories. They're neither right nor wrong. They're just their stories on on how they got where they are. And there is an emphasis nowadays, uh, it seems to me, about storytelling. I Mm -hmm. hear it all around us. Mm -hmm. And so this book fits right in with that. What advice would you have for someone who wants to talk about the importance of their faith with children or grandchildren? Mm, Great question. I think one of the reasons we wrote the book the way we wrote the book is it's a dialogue. It's meant to be a conversation between those who are inside religious institutions and those who are outside. And it's asking questions through telling stories and inviting us to do the same. It's not a how-to book. There isn't a (laughs) how-to. It's about the conversation. It's about learning one from the other. Emerging generations are more open to mentors than any previous generation, but they don't want mentors as in being apprenticed. I've arrived and I will show you my trade. No, they want equal partnering and pairing of relationship. They believe they have things to contribute to that relationship and they believe you have something to contribute to them. It's a mutual give and take. And so I think that is the way going forward. This collaboration that they want in the marketplace, they also want it in relationships. They want it to be a definite give and take, a back and forth. And the book invites people to that back and forth. So a great way to have this conversation, for instance, with your kids, would be to read the book together and to have the conversation. At the end of each chapter, there are questions. You get to answer the question that we asked the 225 people we interviewed. You get to understand why we asked that question. You get to dig deep. And in the process, there's this coming to know the other. There is this appreciation of the other, not the other as project that I'm going to fix or I'm going to get to join or I'm going to, right? but the other as person and how to relate back and forth. Relating back and forth, yes. And so it's not a how-to book to get people to go back to worship services. No, it is not. <laughs> that comes out pretty clearly. So that's your the, the storytelling is really important. Do you have hope as we move forward? What's I have a great deal of hope. I don't have hope that these generations want to fix our institutions that are somewhat broken. 
But I do have hope that emerging generations want to explore in the kinds of environments that if we are wise, we will create for them. They want to explore how to express what they believe, how to discover what they believe, how to engage in conversation around belief, around faith, around spirituality, around something that is greater than themselves. They, it was incredible when we asked the question of legacy to them, how many of them, when they're describing their legacy, they are describing in so many ways the things that we value as people of faith. They might not name it the same way we do, but it was just beautiful to see. I have incredible hope for emerging generations. I have incredible hope that if the church, the synagogue, the mosque, the gudwara, if they opened up and really listened carefully, non-defensively, non-judgmentally to emerging generations, I think they will find great hope. Thank you, Sue. As you can tell, dear listeners, uh, Reverend Sue Pizer Yoder is a teacher extraordinaire. We'd certainly appreciate you coming over and sharing your thoughts with us this evening, Sue. My pleasure. And good luck. The book is called Hear Us Out, Six Questions on Belonging and Belief. Well, that's it for Perspectives this evening. I'm John Pierce, our engineer, James Zebrot. And until we meet again, remember to be gentle with your neighbor. If you enjoyed this program, please go to the WDIY website or app to share or become a WDIY member.